2 Samuel chapter 11, we looked last Wednesday night at verses 1 through 5 in what is a hallmark uh, chapter in David's life, uh, and we want to continue that with verses 6 through 27 this evening. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and then uh, find uh, verse number 6, and we'll read down through the conclusion uh, of the chapter. Then David uh, sent Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house with a gift of food from the king that followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. And did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Do you you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow. I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. That is, David made Uriah drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Put Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and then retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. So it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So Joab sent And told David all things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling these matters of war to the king, it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know what, that they would shoot from the wall who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then Joab says, this this is what you're going to tell David if he says that. Tell him that your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field and Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. Of course, here the servant doesn't waste any time with whether or not David is going to ask any questions, and he just gets it out there. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. 
Then David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Don't let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent, brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. As we began 2 Samuel chapter 11 last week, we were reminded again of just how dark and defining this moment was in David's life. It was truly a monumental collapse. In just a moment, David was finding himself safe from his enemies, but he was not safe from himself. For the seed of every known sin, as we looked at last Wednesday, lies within all of our Hearts. That is, we could, we could go into hiding the rest of our lives, but we would still be in the presence of our greatest danger, which is ourselves. And Scripture teaches us that all that sin needs is an opportunity. And for David, that opportunity came. He innocently takes a walk on the roof of his palace when unintentionally he gets a glimpse of a beautiful woman in her bath, but instead of turning away, he stared at her. His gaze was lust. He fixed his eyes on something that did not belong to him, something that was unholy for his eyes to see. You see, she was married, and the opportunity for Sin to give birth was great because we, we discover and David discovers that, that her husband is out of town. So in that moment of temptation, he allowed his lustful passions to overrule God's word. As we stated last Wednesday, when David saw Bathsheba, he lost sight of God. So David pursued her. She came to him, they slept together, and she returned to her house. So, so in David's mind, he has to be thinking, hey, this, this whole fling is, is now over. Nobody will ever know what happened, except there came a message from Bathsheba to David. And the, and the message reads in verse 5 simply, I'm pregnant. I am with child. Now, now let me just by way of introduction consider the possibility that there are some who might think that this whole thing is really not that big of a deal. That is what David has done. Now, I, I recognize, as you do, that the sexual morals of our society have all been but thrown out the window completely. But God's word still calls us to sexual purity. And it's obvious here that David did not have the same resolve as Job did in Job 31 when he said, I made a covenant with my eyes 
that I will not look upon another woman. If David ever made that covenant, he's now violated it. And perhaps we need to be reminded of such covenants that need to take place in our lives. If indeed we are truly going to be a holy, separated people unto God. Regardless of what is being unfolded for us in this generation of perverse and sexual dysfunction. God calls his people to be holy. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 to run, flee, get away from sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual sin sins against his own body. He goes on to say, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and you are not your own. No, you do not belong to yourself. You don't have the right to look at whatever you want to look at and engage in whatever activities you want to engage in. No, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to God. Because you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and spirit, which both belong to God. You may not think this is a big deal, but let me tell you, it's a big deal. And it's something that we have to fight with, perhaps even on a daily basis. But what's David going to do now that he finds out that his, his girlfriend for the weekend is pregnant? Well, let me begin by saying number one here in way of an outline is that, first of all, and these are, these are in, intensely practical, uh, number one, the sinful heart is naturally deceptive. That's where we need to begin. The sinful heart is naturally deceptive. We ask the question, what's David going to do? Well, the best thing, the godly thing, the biblical thing is for him to confess and repent of his sin. But the thing is... Our sinful and depraved hearts are naturally deceptive. It's so deceptive that we don't even see in ourselves who we really are. That inside of us, we are profoundly unrighteous. We are desperately weak. We're extremely foolish. We're not good. This is why God had to send himself as a savior because there is no good in us. Excuse my Star Wars illustration. Just indulge me for a moment. But your fans remember, what was it that Padme, she kept telling Obi-Wan as he was moving over to the dark side, she kept saying to Obi-Wan, I know there's good in him. I know it, Obi-Wan. There is still good in him. See, this is the problem. Our hearts are so deceptive that we don't even realize just how evil we are. All David needed to do was to simply humble himself, acknowledge what he had done, and take responsibility for whatever consequence his sin would bring. Which, by the way, in this day and age, the consequence was pretty strong. I don't know if David would have been held as king to the same level as everyone else. That's not for us to even determine at this point. 
But the law stated anyone who was found guilty of adultery would be stoned to death. It's a death penalty. But instead of confession, David chose deception. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did, didn't it? It's what David did. It's what we do. Because that's the instinctive nature of our sinful hearts. The sinful heart is naturally deceptive. So what David does as we come into verse 6 is he enters into the stages of a, of a cover-up. Verse 6, look at it there. Then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now, now stop right here because when we read this, we, we find out verse 5, the fling is over. Bathsheba communicates to David that she's pregnant. And then immediately in verse 6, David says, hey, go get Uriah. Go get Uriah. Bring him, bring him home. So, so before we, if we didn't have not read the rest of the story yet, we, we have a little bit of glimmer, right? A little bit of hope that maybe David is bringing Uriah home in order to confess to him, in order to make this thing right. Is that what David is doing here? Well, it says in verse 6 that he sends for Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah back to David, verse 7. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked him, how everybody's doing? Small talk. How's Joab doing? How are the people doing? How's the war doing? Verse 8. And, and David said to Uriah, now, I want you to go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on this or not yet. But to me, everything David's doing is extremely risky. I mean, surely he had to know that this situation, even before he goes and gets Uriah, was very likely not to stay a secret. After all, this whole arrangement with he and Bathsheba was not done in private. He sent messengers to inquire about Bathsheba. He got other people involved. And then he sent people to go get her. Then, then messengers come to David with a, with a note from Bathsheba. Again, we, we don't have to be present in Jerusalem to know that this is how it is when you got a lot of people involved in a situation. It's only a matter of time before the best-kept secret in Jerusalem gets out, right? I mean, the rumor mill's going. People have to be talking, whether it's in the kitchen of the palace or in the armory of the palace or the messengers who sit around King David's table. They have to be whispering. They have to be talking. They have to realize what's going on. And then we find David sending more messengers, perhaps even the same ones, to go get Uriah. All of this is bold and risky, but that's the kind of person David has been. We follow him even in all of his faithfulness. He is a bold, courageous, risky type of personality. And it becomes quickly apparent here that David is not bringing Uriah home in order to confess in him. Instead, they engage, as we've already alluded to, in the small talk. David says, how's Joab doing? How are the people doing? How's the war going? Now, let me say, David isn't really concerned at this point about knowing the answers to the questions. He has one agenda, and that one agenda is to get Uriah home to his wife in order to cover himself in this pregnancy. So when the small talk comes to an end, he simply says to Uriah, now, now, thank you. Thank you for coming on this long journey to give me all this information. Go down to the house and 
Wash your feet. Now, now to us culturally, this sounds really, really strange. Go down to your house and wash your feet. Well, let me help us understand it in modern vocabulary, all right? Here's what David is saying. Look, you've traveled a long way to bring me this report of the battle. Now, go home to your wife. Refresh yourself. Kick back a little bit. Relax. Enjoy this short little break. And when the when the time is right, then you can go back to the battlefield. I mean, you've come all this way. Just go home. You haven't seen your wife in forever. Just, just go enjoy a couple nights together. It's absolutely clear, obviously, that David wants Uriah to have some time alone for his wife, with his wife for obvious reasons. So we come to verse 8. So Uriah departed from the king's house with a gift of food from the king that followed him. At this point, I'm wondering whether or not Uriah even knew about all the things that were going on. Did he know more than he was letting on at this point? Did he suspect something? I mean, of all people, he was chosen to come home to report something to David that really, honestly, Joab easily could have done himself. That was the standard. But now he's brought home. And the king's engaging with him in small talk. And now, now, oddly, weirdly, strangely, the king wants him to go home to be with his wife. And not only does he send him home to be with his wife, he actually follows him out the door with another messenger holding a basket of wine and chocolate strawberries. With perhaps a CD of Kenny G. Who knows? Did, they, did, did, did Uriah not grab this and think to himself, this is really weird. This is strange. Did he suspect anything? Had someone maybe even on the journey from the battlefield back to Jerusalem let him in on the secret before they even arrived? Was the gossip meal going so strongly in the palace before he even saw David? Is somebody warning Uriah as to what's going on? Listen, the reason I even bring this up is because Uriah doesn't even go home at all. He doesn't go home. Now, let's just put yourself in his position. If you were oblivious or naive to the whole situation, and you're brought home from the battlefield, and the king says, look, you haven't seen your wife in months. Go home, kick back a little bit, enjoy a couple nights. I mean, we're not going to argue. Sure, I'll go home for a couple nights. He doesn't do it. Look at verse 9. Instead, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. He slept with all the servants of his lord. Found him a place there on the steps. Maybe he used a burly man's leg as a pillow. I don't know. But wherever the servants were spending the night, that's where he spent the night. And he emphasizes the verse, the narrator emphasizes verse 9, that he did not go down to his house. So instead of going home, again, he falls asleep with David's servants on the steps of the palace. And I, again, I'm asking myself the question, did he know? Did he know? Well, we can't be sure, but it seems to me that he likely may have known. Why else would he have done this? Well, David finds out. Look at verse 10. They come back and they told David, hey, look at it. Uriah didn't go down to the house. David said to Uriah, he had to see this for himself. And he comes to Uriah face to face and he says to him, hey, did you not come from a long journey? What in the world are you doing, man? This is ridiculous. Why didn't you go home to your house? 
Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open field. There's a war going on. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live, king, and as your soul lives, I, I will not do this thing. Now, that phrase, I will not do this thing, that's what David should have said a couple of nights ago on the rooftop. I will not do this thing. You wonder if certain words and conversations bring great conviction just by hearing them. Uriah looks at the king and he says, I will not do this thing. And it's a stunning response, isn't it? Again, we don't know and David doesn't know whether or not Uriah knew anything. It could have been a statement uh, that shows us how much integrity Uriah had. It could be a statement that reveals that he's a naive individual. It's also very possible that he was carefully, cleverly, and brilliantly rebuking the king based upon his knowledge of David's secret. We just don't know. But what we do know is that another opportunity for David to make things right has come about. He's talking to Uriah again, and he has an opportunity to say in his mind, you know, this whole thing, I can't believe I've gone this far with it. I just need to talk to you, Uriah. But he doesn't. In fact, David tries, if you will, plan B of his cover-up. Verse 12, David said to Uriah, just, just wait here. Don't, don't go back to the battle yet. Wait, wait here today and tomorrow, and then I'll let you go. Now, why is he asking him to wait? He's trying to buy some time. What do I got to do to make this cover-up happen? So just, just wait. Just wait until I, until I, inside he's thinking this, until I think of something, right? And so that's what he does. Uriah remains, verse, verse 12, he remains in Jerusalem that day and the next day. And then verse 13 says, David called him in and they began to eat and they drank. In fact, David made him drunk. This was plan B, by the way, to make him so drunk that he would then eventually stumble home and be with his wife. But at evening, look at what it says in verse 13, Uriah went out to lie on a bed with the servants of his Lord, and he still did not go down to his house. So here we have David's heart so deceived that he thinks that there are better options than confession and repentance. I'll make the man drunk and manipulate the situation to get him to do what I need him to do. John, John Woodhouse said, and I, I, I chuckle at the comment whether he means it or not. It's still funny, and i got to share it with you. He said, Uriah drunk in this moment was better than David sober. It's true. Uriah is making better decisions drunk than David is sober. And this is the whole problem, isn't it? Our sinful hearts think we can deal with our own sin. That's my problem. That's your problem. 
Our sinful hearts have convinced us that we can deal with our own sin, that we can cover up nicely what only Jesus can cover fully. The Bible says in Proverbs 28 and 13, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes his sin will have mercy. Yes, there is much sin, as we sang tonight, in us, but there is more mercy in Christ. Why would we try to cover up nicely what Jesus promises he would cover fully if we would just confess and forsake it? Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Look, the sinful heart is naturally deceptive. That's the first thing we see. Here's the second thing that we see. Number two, unrepentant sin will take us down paths we never dreamed we would go. Unrepentant sin will take us down paths that we never dreamed we would go. Over and over again, God gives us space to repent, doesn't he? He is indeed long-suffering toward us. He doesn't want us to be swallowed by the downward spiral of, of unrepented sin. But in many cases, like David, we neglect those opportunities. And once again... David has the opportunity to make things right. The whole bringing him home, telling him to go back to his house didn't work. I made him drunk. That didn't work. I just might as well confess. But here's where we see the truth that unrepentant sin will take us down paths we never dreamed we would go. Because what we have here is a story of lust, adultery, deception, drunkenness, and now murder. What started as a lustful glance has now turned into a murder plot. David's deliberate execution of an innocent man just to protect himself. Look at verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab. And isn't this ironic? He sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat for him, from him that he may be struck down and die. All right, this is, this is plan C. He couldn't get him to go home and lay with his wife. He made him drunk. He still didn't do it. So now he's decided to put Uriah in his grave. And again, notice it's David writing this plan in a letter for Uriah himself to deliver. He's literally carrying his own execution sentence. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know how you are or how you might have been, but do you think for a little bit that Uriah might have been tempted ever to open that letter on the journey back to the battlefield just to see what was inside? Now, I'm not going to ask you if you've ever opened up somebody else's mail before. But you got to wonder, right? You have to wonder. He, he has a human nature, sinful nature, just like his all. If I suspect it, that this whole thing was a setup. If I had heard through the gossip mill what David had done with my wife and I had done all these things to make sure that he couldn't pin me to it, then when the letter's given to me, I think he's going to kill me, but I'm going to open it up just to make sure. <laughs> now, nah, we, we, we don't know if he did or not. It's just a little thing to think about sometimes. Did he know that he was carrying the message of his impending death? Well, if he did know, 
Let me say what a man of integrity he was. Because he chose to obey the king's order even when those orders had been turned wickedly against him. So right here, I think it's good to take a little time out. So if you're keeping track with how long I'm preaching, this doesn't count. I think it's good to take a little time out and not forget about Uriah's place in all of this. He's the perfect example of the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Ever thought about Uriah in the story? Some of you are Uriah. You've been on the raw end of a bad deal. Your spouse's unfaithful decisions had nothing to do with you. Your your boss's decisions that have placed you in an uncomfortable position, it's, it's nothing to do with you. We have to look at it from that perspective when we see Nothing written about Uriah and Bathsheba's relationship. I mean, he's going about his business, fighting for the king, standing for the honor of the king, presumably loving his wife, and he still gets the raw end of the deal. And this is the lesson that we need to learn if we are Uriah's. That the love of God does not exempt the children of God from suffering, from trials, even death. So when we feel like bad things are happening to good people, when we feel like in situations very similar to this, that we're getting the raw end of the deal, may we remember that there is a better life to come. And it's not the life that we're living here on earth. It's the one that God has prepared for those who trust and follow him. Fooey on this, your best life now, John. Try giving best life now book to Uriah. It's not going good for him. And some of you find yourself in moments like that, whether it's news you don't want to hear, a relationship struggles as similar to this that you never dreamed would occur, abandonment, whatever the case may be. There are Davids, there are Bathshebas, and then there are times that we're Uriah. But God still loves us. He's not mad at us. He's not judging us. He's trying to fulfill a purpose. Here's the other thing to know about Uriah's place in the story. And that is innocent people are often severely hurt by our own sinful recklessness. Innocent people are often severely hurt by our own sinful recklessness. So often we think, well, this is not hurting anybody. This is just my problem, and I'm going to deal with it. And we don't even realize how many people were hurting around us in the process. But let me move on. The task is carried out. But not the exact same way David instructed it. In fact, Joab thought he'd help David out a little bit because, honestly, it would have been way too suspicious for David to do what he suggested. Instead of just retreating, Joab put these men in a position where the enemy who was on the wall of the city could fire down, downward to the vulnerable vulnerable soldiers below. It was a military tactic that you simply never put your soldiers in. But in this case, Joab 
Joab did. And it not only brought Uriah's death, but it brought the innocent death of other soldiers as well. So a lot of people died that day. Not just Uriah. All because David chose to cover his sin rather than repent of it. Look at it there in verse 16, and let's just read down to verse 24. So it was, Joab besieged the city that he signed Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. He put him right there on the front lines in the heat of the battle. So the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. Some of the people, the servants of David, fell. Uriah the Hittite died also. That's, that's the summary. Now we get to the details, verse 18. So Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and he charged the messenger who was sending the message home to, to tell him this. Look, when you've, when you've told him all of this, when, when you, let me summarize it quickly for you. When, when you've told him that I charged a city wall with our men down in the vulnerable spot and theirs up top, he knows we don't do that. And he gives an illustration of where that's gone by, bad with Abimelech in the past. Hey, he knows we don't do that, so that there, there, there's, there's potential here that David's going to be a little bit angry when he finds out that we did something military-wise that you just don't do. But let me tell you something. If you see him getting angry, just, just throw this in here. Just tell him that Uriah is dead too, and all will be fine. And that's exactly what the messenger did. Can I just give you one more thing to think about in all of this before I give you the third and final statement? And that is, in our attempt to cover sin, we may be able to silence others, but we'll never be able to silence our own conscience. And that's why all of this is stacking up against David. He's trying to silence everyone he can around him about what he's done. But he still goes to bed tonight, at night thinking in his own conscience what he's committed and what he's carried out. All right, let me give you the third thing. Number three, sin is always a bigger deal than we sometimes see it to be. Sin is always a bigger deal than we sometimes see it to be. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. Think about this. David, David gets the news. He says, look, go back to Joab, and here's what I want you to tell him. Don't let this thing that you did displease you. In other words, don't let it seem evil to you what you've done. For the sword devours one as well as another. So strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. He tells him to encourage him. To encourage him. David wanted the messenger to encourage David about what he did because what he did wasn't wrong. These things happen. You hear what David's saying? Here's what I want you to tell Joab. Joab, don't let this thing trouble you. Don't let this seem evil in your eyes. These things happen. Soldiers die. Move on with the battle. Be encouraged at what we're doing. I find it quite remarkable, incredible, that David's heart has become so deceived, so blinded, that he doesn't even see the evil of what he's done. Uriah is murdered. Other soldiers were sacrificed in the process. But he says to Joab, oh, but don't let this bother you, Joab. 
Don't let this bother you because it doesn't bother me. Don't let it bother you because it doesn't bother me. And friends, that is a bad place to be when sin no longer bothers you. It's what we call a seared conscience. Can you sin against your neighbor and it not bother you? Can you gossip and it not bother you? Can you look at unholy, inappropriate sexual images and it not bother you? It not only not bothered David, he didn't see it as a problem anymore. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband, which I think is just to let us know that Bathsheba didn't have anything to do with this whole plot. We don't know anything that led up to their encounter but I think the narrator's trying to tell us here that she, she had nothing to do with her husband's death. And when her mourning was over, verse 27, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. It seems to have worked, doesn't it? Uriah is out of the picture completely now. His sin with Bathsheba is now covered. All he had left to do is to make her his wife, and then he could claim the child he had fathered as his own without any discrepancy in the people's eyes. Surely this chapter in David's life is now closed. Except David overlooked one thing. He overlooked God. Look at it at the end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Isn't it ironic how the Bible just lays out even these sentences? Because David had just told Joab not to let this thing displease him. But he failed to consider that it had displeased The Lord. It's as if God was saying, David, this may not have bothered you, but it bothers me. You may have fooled other people, but you've not fooled me. I was watching David the entire time. And sometimes we think that sin is only significant if somebody finds out. David has done all that he can to make sure nobody finds out. However, he has failed to realize that sin is always significant because God knows everything. Everything. Your wife may not know, but God knows. He knows everything. But David is doing what some of us so often do. We engage in unrepented sin, and by doing so, we live as practical atheists. We act like there's no God who sees, no God who knows, no God who cares, no God who will hold us accountable, which is a major reason why the lost in this world downplay even the existence of God. If they can convince themselves that there's no God, then there's no penalty for their sinful behavior. 
They don't want a God who knows about their sin. So it's better for them to believe that there's no God at all so they can live however they please than to acknowledge the existence of God and always struggle with the impending day of judgment. Don't believe for one moment that whoever it is in your life that's telling you they're an atheist, that they're doing so for intellectual reasons. The Bible's already proven that point that it's not done for intellectual reasons. It's done for moral reasons. I don't want to have to give account for my life, for my behavior, for my sin. And so what's the best way to live and sear your conscience? By believing there's no God at all. And this is practically what David is doing. He's become a practical atheist. He put God out of the whole picture. But Proverbs tells us the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He's not only watching the good, but he's watching the evil. Three things. I want to close with this. Number one, if it can happen to David, it can happen to me. You need to believe that. Because the moment you start believing that it can't happen is when you begin walking down a path of very dangerous living. If it can happen to David, friends, it can happen to any one of us. The second thing is that we need to understand in light of the whole context of what we've been studying for the last couple of years in First and Second Samuel is that the fulfillment of God's promises do not lie in the goodness of man. Because perhaps we're thinking, I mean, good, good night, the whole coming of the Messiah is hinged upon the kingship of David. Well, what good is this man now? Look at what he's done. Well, see, that's, that's, that's the wonderful thing about God and his grace. That the fulfillment of God's promises do not lie in the goodness of man. It lies in the goodness of God. So, yes, David has, has royally messed up, no pun intended. But we look to God and we see His incomprehensible grace that God keeps His promises and He continues to use people who have failed Him miserably. And there's not one person in this room that has not failed God miserably. Yet we stand here or sit here tonight as living testimonies that God is gracious to us. That fulfilling his eternal promises of salvation in our life are not contingent upon our goodness. It is contingent upon his goodness. It's again another reminder of why we cannot look to men for our answers. It's only in Jesus that we find a king, a savior, a God whom we can follow. And then let me encourage you, number three. Here's the third thing I want to close with, and that is this. There is a way back. We look at David, and we think, man, he's too far gone. Perhaps you're sitting here tonight because somebody, or not because of, but you're sitting here tonight knowing that maybe years ago in your past, somebody said that about you. They're too far gone. I'll be honest. I'd be lying if I didn't think that about some people that I know. 
who are living that practical atheist life. And we're thinking they're, they're too far gone. But in God's purposes, you're never too far away to be brought back home. There is a way back. And we're going to get to that way next Wednesday in chapter 12. But we at least need to acknowledge here that unrepentant sin may have taken you down a path you never dreamed you would go. But you can come back. The king who is otherwise kind and just and righteous and faithful, the man that God chose who knowing chapter 11 would happen is now in a royal scheme of lies and deception and lust and adultery and drunkenness and murder and is not even bothering him. In fact, his conscience is so seared, it's going to take somebody else to wake his mind up. And that's where we'll come to next week. Let's stand together for prayer.